We continue this morning our study from Paul's letter to the Philippians. We have come to chapter number three, and this chapter in a sense is autobiographical of the apostle. In verses 1 through 11, he speaks about his heritage as a Jew. In verses 12 through 16, the verses we are going to look at today, he is speaking about what is going on in his life. And then verses 17 through 21, he speaks about what he believes is going to happen in the future. Now, when we looked at verses 1 through 11 in chapter number 3, Paul used the terminology of an accountant to speak to us. As we come to verses 12 through 16 today, he uses the language of an athlete. So I want you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 12. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Now then, as Paul is speaking to us today, he begins by speaking about the Christian's dissatisfaction. You'll notice there in verse number 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Verse number 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. There is within the believer always this sense of dissatisfaction because we have not arrived. There is always that sense of dissatisfaction within us because we know we are not what God intends us to be and what we want to be. That seems to be strange to us and a little bit paradoxical to us because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He said, well, Jesus says that I am going to be satisfied. Then why am I not? The word satisfied that he uses there is an agricultural term. It was used to refer to fattening out an animal, which happens a little bit at a time. So when Jesus is speaking about our satisfaction, he is saying that it happens to us a little bit at a time. I become increasingly satisfied with the Lord, but I never arrive in this life. I am never totally satisfied in this life. Now, if I do become satisfied in this life, then that is before the time, and that is detrimental to my spiritual growth. So if I become satisfied while I am here, if I become content totally with myself while I am here, then I cease to grow. And there are two harmful mistakes that lead us to satisfaction. 
One is improper comparisons. In other words, if, if I compare myself to someone who is less, then I become satisfied with mediocrity in my own life. For instance, if a student compares himself or herself to someone who is not a good student, then they become satisfied not being a good student. If a student compares themselves to someone who has bombed the test, then they are satisfied with bombing the test. We know that that is also true concerning business. If, if a business becomes satisfied by comparing itself to another business that is not successful, then it is satisfied to its own detriment. John Patterson wrote, The business that is satisfied with itself, with its product, with its sales, that looks upon itself as having accomplished its purpose is dead. So we know then with students, we know in a business, we know in other arenas, if we become satisfied by comparing ourselves to something that is less, then we are satisfied with mediocrity that is no less true spiritually. If we compare ourselves to those who are less spiritually, then we become content being less spiritually or with spiritual mediocrity. And so oftentimes we hear people say, well, no one is perfect. Well, what does that mean? That means there's no reason for me to try. If no one is perfect, if no one can attain it, if no one can reach it, then why should I make the effort? I hear people oftentimes say, well, I, I'm just as good as those people who go to church, so don't go to church. But see, that's what happens to us when we find someone who is less spiritually, then we become, if we compare ourselves to them, then we become with mediocrity in our own life. So one of the mistakes is improper comparisons. We compare ourselves to those who are less. The second mistake is erroneous evaluation, that we evaluate ourselves wrongly. In fact, as I was reading in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I see that the churches of Asia wrongly evaluated themselves. In fact, the church in Sardis saw themselves as alive. They were the church of what's happening now. I mean, they were on fire. They were giving it everything. They were performing. They were doing all of those things. But Jesus said, you're not alive. You're dead. They wrongly evaluated themselves. The church in Laodicea. They saw themselves as rich. They said, we are rich. We have need of nothing. Jesus said they were poor. The church in Smyrna, they saw themselves as poor. Jesus said, you are not poor. You are rich. Folks, we can evaluate ourselves erroneously by comparing ourselves to someone we believe to be, or we, by looking at people that we feel better than, and so we become content. Now, I'm comparing myself, and you, know, you can do that. You can look up there and say, you know, that guy's up there preaching. I'm a lot better Christian than he is, and I'm sure that's true. But you can compare yourselves to me and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Or we can compare ourselves to someone who is better than us, and then we lose hope. We give up. Because I can't measure up to that person that person is such a wonderful Christian, I can never measure up to that. So there are erroneous evaluations. How do we properly evaluate ourselves? 
How can we evaluate ourselves to see where we actually are? Well, first of all, by comparing ourselves to Christ. And if we do that, that produces humility within us. You need to understand that the measurement of comparison is not the pastor, it's not the deacon, it's not the minister of music, it is Jesus. And that's the reason the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who is the glory of God? That is Jesus. And what happens to all of us when we are compared to Him? We fall short. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So then we compare ourselves to Jesus, and that produces humility within us. But then we can compare ourselves to where we were last year, and that should give us hope. Now, I remember once talking with an evangelist friend of mine, and I said, Marion, I, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. I'm just, I'm just uh, you know, I just don't think I'm ever going to get there. And he said, well, Wendell, if you compare yourself to Jesus, there's always going to be a great distance between you and Jesus. But in order to put it in perspective, he says, turn around and ask yourself, am I closer to Jesus this year than I was last? And if I'm closer to Jesus this year than I was last year, then I'm going in the right direction. So we need to properly compare ourselves, compare ourselves to Christ, and that causes humility within us, compare ourselves to where we were, and that should produce hope within us. So the Christian is always dissatisfied. We are satisfied with Jesus, but there is always a hunger and thirst for righteousness within our heart. Now he talks about the Christian's devotion in verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, when he uses those words, reaching forth, those are athletic words. Those are the words of the language of an athlete. And, and here he is speaking about our devotion. And he is saying that if our devotion is divided then we will never be satisfied and we can never be successful. James said a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, we know, for instance, that if a business becomes too diversified, if they become too divided in their devotion, chances are they can't succeed. For instance, if there is a law firm and they're selling used cars on the side, chances are they're not going to be a, a good law firm because they have become too divided. In business, in life, if we become too diverse, if our devotions are too divided, we never find satisfaction, fulfillment, or success. And yet, I believe that is exactly what has happened in the church. I think that we have become involved in doing so many good things that we have neglected the one thing that Jesus told us to do. And that is to reach this world for Christ. Linda and I were talking yesterday. And I said, you know, I believe the church is going to be radically different in the next years. I believe that it is going to change dramatically in the next years. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church generally. The reason I say that is because I think it is going to be in response to Islam. Islam is an ideology that is 
committed to world domination. Now, how do we respond to that? Do we respond to it through negotiation? That's not going to be successful. Do we respond to it militarily? That is not going to be successful. How do we respond? With the church becoming the militant church of Jesus Christ, going out with the good news that God loves you. I think the church is going to change dramatically. And I have been studying some of the young people and some of the things that they are doing in church today. I, I, Linda and I talked for a long time about it yesterday, and I think that we are going to see a lot of difference in the church in the years ahead. And let me tell you something. We better. We better. We're going to lose this world if we don't. I don't know how it's going to be. I have some ideas, but I think it's going to be different. If we can't do everything, then we must have a selective devotion. And that's what Paul says in verse 13, this one thing I do. In other words, if I can't do everything, then I have to establish some priorities. What are the scriptural priorities of the church? We have a lot of programs. What are the scriptural priorities of the church? And I think basically, and I've thought this for some years now, there are three. And we find all of them in Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 17. It says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. I believe the first priority of the church is that we worship the Lord God. We worship Him in spirit and in truth, but we worship Him. It is not just coming to church. It's not just a ritual that we fulfill. It is not just religion that we perform, but that we worship Almighty God. Worship Him. Now then, if we have truly worshipped Him, that leads to the second priority, which is evangelism. In Matthew chapter 28, Verse number 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples. Now then, we don't go to the world and say, You convert or you die. But we go to the world to say that God loves you. And that Jesus died for you that you might be saved. If we have worshipped the Lord, I think that results in evangelism. And the third priority is discipleship. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So as we look at the church today, Paul says, this one thing I do. What is it that the church is to do? We are to worship God. If we worship God, we have the, God, the heart of God. Then we go out to evangelize, to lead people to Christ. And when we evangelize them, lead them to Christ, then we disciple them in the faith. And then Paul speaks about the Christian's direction. Now, if we're going in the right direction, if your life is going in the right direction, it is going to bring some satisfaction, some fulfillment, some success to your life. So what is the, what is the right direction? He says, well, forget the past. Look at verse number 13. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Cleve McClary, many of you are familiar with Cleve, has, has a bumper sticker on his car that says FIDO, F-I-D-O, which stands for forget it and drive on. There are some things we are to forget and drive on. We have to forget the past, and we have to forget past failings. 
All of us have this in common. We have all failed. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.13, I was formerly a, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Paul says, what is in my, what's in my background? He said, I blasphemed God. I persecuted the church. That's what's in my past. He failed in that area. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, he had failure in his life. You remember the story in the New Testament when Jesus had mentioned that one of the disciples would betray him. And Simon Peter says, Lord, everybody else might, but not me. You can count on me. It was later that evening that Simon Peter said to the little girl, I don't know who he is. I've never seen the man. He denied Jesus. He had that in his past. There was failure in Peter's past. David, the prince of God, man after God's own heart, committed adultery. You know the story of Bathsheba, how he committed adultery with her. You know how he tried to cover it up by being responsible for the death of her husband. There was failure in his past. Whenever David looked at his life, there was there was failure. We all have past failures. Every one of us here. Folks, there's, there's not a one of us here who's not scarred by sin. Not a one of us. Oh, we come to church all dressed up and looking nice and spiritual, but the truth of the matter is, back there in our past, there are scars that come from sin. Forgetting those things which are behind. That includes past failures. Well, how, how do we put them behind us? How do we conquer them? I think the same way David did. In Psalm chapter 51, I'd encourage you to go home and read that, Psalm 51, because that is David's confession when he's dealing with God after his sin has been pointed out. And there he cries out to the Lord and he says, God, I have sinned against you. And he begins to talk about his sin. And then he cries out, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. But there in Psalm chapter 51, he put it behind him. How do we put ours behind us? Well, Paul tells us in part by relying on Christ in verse number 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. You see, we all have past failures, but Paul says, but don't ever forget this. Jesus has not left you if you know him. He is with you. If you know Jesus, he has not left you. You might have strayed from him, but he has not left you. Rely on Christ. Depend on prayer. In 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, if we confess our sin, the word confess that is used there means to say the same thing as. We have a lot of euphemisms for our sin, don't we? Folks, you're never going to get over your sin. You're never going to deal with your sin until you call it what it is. It's sin. It's disobedience to God. If we confess our sin, say the same thing as. In other words, we call our sin what God calls our sin. We pray, and then we accept His forgiveness. What does He say there? If we confess our sin, what? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. David confessed his sin to God there in Psalm chapter 51. He poured out his heart to God. He confessed his sin to God. And God forgave him of his sin. In fact, it's really interesting to study David's life because David did his greatest work after that. 
after that. He confessed his sin to God. He had sinned tremendously, but he dealt with his sin, and God used him mightily afterwards. Peter confessed his sin and accepted the Lord's forgiveness, and he gave the rest of his life to serving the Lord. Peter died for the Lord. Even after he had denied Jesus, I don't know him, he spent the rest of his life saying, Oh, I know him. I know him. He's my Savior. And he died confessing his faith in Christ. Forgetting those things that are behind, our past failures, our past successes. There's some who can't go on and serve the Lord today because they're too busy celebrating the good old days. Oh, those were the good old days. You remember when we used to do so-and-so and so-and-so? Oh, those were the good old days. And they're stuck back there, can't do anything for the Lord because they've not forgotten their past. He says, forgetting those things which are behind. That's failures. That's successes. And pursue the future. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we put yesterday behind so that we can pursue the future. Now, the word I press that is used there is a very intense word. It is a picture of a hunter hunting game. So there is a sense of intensity with it. Let me ask you a question. What are you pursuing with intensity? Some of you guys will say, well, this girl I saw, man, I'm pursuing her with intensity. And one of these days you're going to catch her and wonder, what in the world have I done? What are you pursuing with intensity? Well, the Bible says we are to pursue God with intensity. Are you pursuing Him with intensity, pressing forward? It means with intensity. It means that we pursue the future with a laser-like focus. Paul never lost sight of his goal. That was the reason Paul could come to the end of his life and said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Paul was able to say that when he came to the end of life, knowing that he was about to be executed because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, because he was focused with intensity, committed to the Lord, moving forward. Jesus was focused on his purpose, and that's the reason from Calvary's cross he was able to say it is finished. He never lost sight of the reason God had brought him. What are you focused on? What are you pursuing with intensity? Committed to God, committed to the future. And then he gives us the Christian discipline. Paul gives us three words for a life that... uh, Satisfies and that is victorious. He says, run the race. In verse number 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. We cannot reach forward until we begin the race. An athlete can't cross the finish line first if they never get off the starting block. He's got to get out and run the race. And the same thing is true with the church. Folks, we can never make an impact for Christ unless we get out to do it. And it's also true with you as an individual. You will not grow in Christ unless you get off the starting block. You have to get out there to run the race. And then he says, and obey the rules. Verse number 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. 
If we fail to obey the rules, then we will be disqualified. You know that with an athlete. You know that with a team. If they don't play by the rules, then they are disqualified. There is a penalty that is called. It's also true for Christians. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself must be disqualified. We have to play with the rules. Samson, you know the story of Samson? How he disobeyed the Lord, did not play by the rules, and was disqualified as a result of it? You have seen preachers, just like I have, and other church leaders, just like I have, who did not obey the rules, and as a result, they were disqualified. So he said, run the race, obey the rules, and receive the prize. Verse number 14, I press on for the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chrysostom said, He that runs looks not at the spectators, but at the prize. At the prize. If an athlete runs the race and obeys the rule, then possibly they will win the prize. That's the challenge to the Christian. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Run in such a way that you may win. Run in such a way that you may win. And that is that one day we stand before Jesus and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me conclude. As an athlete, Paul tells us how to live the Christian life. And he says, first of all, that there is always dissatisfaction within you. There's always this sense of, I haven't arrived. I hunger and thirst after righteousness, and I become more satisfied, but there's always room for growth. There's always room to be deeper with the Lord, to be more intimate with the Lord. Dissatisfaction. Do you have that dissatisfaction, or are you content? Secondly, he says we must be devoted to Christ. That He is the devotion of our life, the focus of our life. Let me ask you, friend, are you devoted to Jesus? There's some of us devoted to our denomination. There's some of us devoted to our tradition. There's some of us devoted to our heritage. Are you devoted to Jesus? Because that's the call of Christianity, devotion to Him. And direction. Are you looking back, living in the past, or are you moving forward? Because Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, I move forward. What is the direction of your life? Are you living in yesterday? Or are you looking to tomorrow? And then discipline. He calls us to live a disciplined life. We can cross the finish line as winners if we do that. I'm very serious, very sincere about uh, when I made the statement earlier that I believe that the church is going to be radically changed in the years ahead. And I believe that there are going to be people, and I think I am seeing them already, people already who are rising up, young people especially, you're absolutely sold out, committed to Jesus, regardless as to what it takes. What about you? 
What about your commitment? What about the depth of it? We are involved in an ideological religious war. And Jesus has said to you and me, go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Teach them. Where are you in that plan? Our Father and God, we come to a time of invitation, a time when your Spirit examines our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we might respond to you. What are you saying to us? Lord, for those who are here without Christ, I pray that they'd be saved. I pray that they'd make a commitment to you. Father, for those who need to join with the church, I pray that they would feel welcome here. And then, Lord, that we would be the church that would step out to make a difference in this world that is so threatening to us today. Lord, lift us up that we might lift you up, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, the choir will sing. And I'll ask you to make a commitment to Jesus today, whatever that is for you. What's God telling you to do? Make a commitment to Christ today. Stand with me, please. As we stand and they sing, you come. I'll reach as you do.